Welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. Our rewatchable spinoff show on Luminary called Rewatchables 1999 is taking a little summer break, but we'll be back in the fall with more movies including Eyes Wide Shut, Never Been Kissed, and more. In the meantime, we're launching a new show on Luminary about another influential moment in 1999 called Break Stuff, the story of Woodstock 99. The pod will dive deep on the iconic music festival and how its success and failures left its mark on history. The series begins on Tuesday, July 9th, and will be coming to you every Tuesday for eight weeks. So make sure to check out Break Stuff, the story of Woodstock 99 on Luminary. Ringer FC, Women's World Cup Wrap-Up Edition, USWNT again, back-to-back champions, their fourth World Cup title won on Sunday, defeating the Netherlands 2-0 in Lyon. Joining me in the studio is Andrew Helms, producer of Backpass, a 30 for 30 podcast about the rise and fall of the WUSA, and also a Ringer contributor. Welcome, Andrew. Hey, thanks for having me. And joining us from France is Caitlin Murray, author of The National Team, The Inside Story of the Women Who Changed Soccer. Caitlin, are you still alive? Barely. I got to get back to the U.S., but I can do one more podcast before I head home. (laughs) And we are thankful for that. So, Caitlin, first of all, you were at the final. (laughs) You were in Lyon, yes? Yes, of course. That's that's what this has all been about. (laughs) What were your impressions of the final game? I think the game itself... um, you know, the press corps, we've all been talking about it a lot. I think the 2015 final obviously was just an explosion of excitement right from the get-go, whereas this was more of a slow burn. I mean, it's a credit to the Netherlands. They looked really organized and they seemed to want to kind of limit the space that the U.S. has had against other teams in this World Cup and make it a little more difficult for them. And I think they were pretty successful at that, at least for a while. Um, So this was the first game where the U.S. didn't score within 12 minutes. So it had a really different feel than the entire rest of the World Cup has had. It was a little bit of a slower game. But then, you know, once the U.S. scores, that sort of opens things up and um, then it becomes, you know, a party again, just like the rest of the World Cup has been. Yeah, but at the same time, it, you know, I was watching at home and and it never really seemed I never doubted that this team was going to win. And I'm curious if the players talked about that. What what is it about this team that they just had so much confidence and so much certainty throughout that no matter what happened, no matter if Haran started or didn't start that that they were just going to win, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think that's sort of embedded just in the culture of this team. The players talk about that a lot. It's definitely a theme in my book where The players who started with the team sort of instilled this idea of never giving up, scrapping, fighting to the very last second. And the younger players on the team talked about how the older players taught them that. And the older players talked about how when they came in, they were taught that. It's just sort of a cultural thing within this team. And I think one difference I did see from 2015 is that I think this team looked a lot closer in terms of... They just seem to be more um, friends and there's better chemistry. And they talked a lot about there being this um, this family sort of atmosphere where in the past, I think there were more factions of veterans and younger players. But this group was such a mix. And Jill Ellis brought in so many young players who were just kind of thrown into things that I think it, they – the veterans embraced the younger players a little bit more. And so I think we saw a closeness that I haven't seen before. I mean, Megan Rapino cried in a press conference talking about her teammates. Ashlyn Harris in the mix zone last night, I asked her about it. She started to cry. It's just something special with this particular group that I can't recall personally ever seen before. No hope solo, no problem. Just kidding. <laughs> Caitlin, I'm sure you're aware on social media and the like, a lot of USWNT fans criticizing Jill Ellis throughout the tournament for, you know, excluding Haran or maybe playing overly conservative. Do you think it was fair, uh, the criticism she got, or is it just something that we had to nitpick something because they were so dominant? Well, in retrospect, it would be kind of 
silly maybe because, I mean, they won the World Cup. I think, you know, there are legitimate questions because, you know, I do think uh, Lindsay Horan, when she's used the right way, is the best central midfielder in the world. But it's it's hard to say. Maybe if Lindsay Horan plays in a couple of games where she didn't play, maybe the scoreline is even bigger for the U.S. Maybe right. they lose. I mean, we just don't know. I think that there are legitimate questions to ask, especially, I think, coming into the tournament. A question I had was why some of the veterans had been cut from the team so quickly after the 2016 Olympics. And then at the very last minute, Allie Krieger makes the roster after not being on the team for two years. That sort of seemed like an admission that that criticism was correct, that Jill Ellis shouldn't have cut some of those players. Um, And it was interesting to see Allie Krieger actually get some time in the game last night. I mean, such a surprise addition to the roster. And then she ends up having to play a pretty important role in getting the U.S. this World Cup. So there were definitely legitimate questions, but I think, you know, the ultimate response is winning and Jill Ellis has done that. So Jill Ellis has won two World Cups. She's kind of at the pinnacle of women's football in the world, right? There's not really a higher job than the U.S. women's national team. Do you think she's the coach four years from now in 2023? I... Wouldn't bet on it. I just think even though she's won another World Cup, it's very rare for a coach to stick around as long. I mean, even as long as she has already. And then to go even beyond that would be very unusual, especially in the U.S. Um, I mean, in 2017, a group of players tried to get her fired. (laughs) This is something, you know, I've talked about in my book. Um, the players weren't really happy with her coaching style and the way she managed a lot of the changes that she felt was necessary to win the World Cup in 2019. So from her standpoint, you know, she could walk out on top and not have to deal with players maybe continuing to be sort of upset with the way that she manages the team and the way she sort of shook things up. You would think maybe the players now uh, would be more accepting of that, given that they've won another World Cup. But I don't know that those issues just sort of go away. So um, from her standpoint, I mean, there is a general manager job that is opening up at U.S. Soccer uh, for the women's program. It's a new position that was created uh, last year, I think it was, and it still hasn't been filled. So I kind of wonder if that might be the perfect job for her because then she no longer has to be the head coach of the women's national team, but she gets to continue to do a lot of the technical things um, that I know she really enjoys doing. So you know, I guess we'll see. U.S. Soccer says that they've been conducting interviews and expect to make a hire soon. I would think that Jill Ellis should be a candidate for that job. Uh, So back on the pitch, after the final, uh, a lot of the plaudits were for, obviously, the two goal scorers, Rapino and Rose Lavelle, kind of like old guard, new guard. Uh, But beyond them, you know, over your time covering the team in the tournament, was there like an unsung hero to you that stood out or someone that didn't get as much uh, press? Yeah, I mean, well, defenders, that's sort of their life. That's just what they deal with. I think Becky Sauerbrunn was really crucial in helping the U.S. just stay sort of steady and organized. And she provides so much leadership on the field that I think it hasn't gone recognized uh, in the past and not now. Um, She's always a really important part of the team. I think even Alex Morgan, um, I think people want to see her scoring more than she does or she has and not recognizing the other things that she's doing when she plays. Um, The hold-up play, uh, the distribution, um, the -the off-the-ball movement to create space for her teammates. Alex Morgan, I think, had a really great... World Cup. And, you know, if you take away the five goals against Thailand that she scored uh, in a very weird 13 to zero game, she really didn't produce that much in this World Cup. But I still think she was really crucial to the success of the U.S. Your Becky Sauerbrunn comment reminded me of something Lindsay Horan told me that, you know, on Instagram, Lindsay Horan occasionally will knock over the bags of her teammates. Have you seen this? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> she calls them loser. She says the one person she would never knock the bag over is Becky Sauerbrunn, just to kind of <laughs> characterize how much 
how much everyone respects Becky and is I mean, you saw her with her head split open yesterday. Yeah, and, yeah, like unfazed. no, no one. You, they all kind of low key kind of fear Becky. It seems too. Yeah, for sure. I think um, there's sort of a quiet confidence from Becky Sauerbrunn where they just know, like, you don't you don't mess with Becky. Like she she knows what to do. She's in charge of things. Yeah, she's sort of the leader of the group, even though she hasn't uh, been wearing the captain's armband. I still think she's one of the most important leaders on the team by far. Yeah. So, you know, looking ahead, um, Megan Rapinoe, I think in 2023, I think she just turned 34, which would make her 38 in, in that World Cup. Alex Morgan would be 34. I know Kelly O'Hara, Tobin Heath, Kristen Press, that whole generation of players is all going to be reaching that age. Do you do you think we'll see a, a, a new influx of, of younger talent into this team over the next the next few years or, or we'll be we'll be looking at, you know, that old guard kind of hanging on for the next four years. What do you think? Well, this U.S. team was by average age, the oldest team in the World Cup in 2015. They were the oldest team in the World Cup. They won both those World Cups. So I don't know if there's a huge urgency to move on from players who, you know, are still able to contribute in some way. Um, I think that there are some really exciting young players. I mean, we saw Rose Lavelle. Mm. She really didn't break into the team until about 2017, a couple of years ago. And she got the bronze ball at the World Cup. I thought she had a fantastic tournament. Um, she's sort of the future of the team, I think. And there are a lot of other young players like her, Mallory Pugh, uh, Tierna Davidson, um, you know, maybe gets less attention because she's a defender, but she's a really, really good player. She could be the heir to Becky Sauerbrunn. So there are a lot of good young players coming up. And I think whether it's Jill Ellis or not, I think what we saw uh, over the last few years is that when Jill Ellis did shake things up and she brought in, I think like 50 new players into the team, that was the right approach. You have to at least see what's out there and maybe you don't have to change that much. Maybe some of these older players are going to keep their spots, but by having that competition, by really evaluating what's out there, I think the U S can get even stronger than they are now. Outside of the U S WNT dominance, I think the main narrative uh, after this World Cup was sort of the rise of Europe and European powers. You know, seven of the final eight spots were European teams. Which of those teams impressed you the most or do you think poses the biggest threat uh, to the American continued dominance of the sport? Yeah, I was impressed by England. I thought they gave the U.S. a really tough time. And just kind of knowing what is going on with their league, the Women's Super League, that also gives a reason for optimism. I mean, Barclays just agreed to a multi-year, multi-million pound deal with that league. The attendance that that league has been getting is going up. I think we're going to see um, more investment in women's soccer in England. And I think that's going to put a lot of pressure on the U.S. I, I thought that England was a team that could have contended for a final. Um I mean, you have to talk about the Netherlands as well, you know, the reigning European champion, and they made it to the final. I mean, there are a lot of teams that are going to be pushing the U.S., and that is why I think they can't stand pat. That's why the U.S. needs to keep, you know, bringing in some of those younger players, and they just won the World Cup, but now they have to look ahead to the next World Cup and start trying to keep up with, I think, more investment, more interest in Europe that is going to put a lot of pressure on the U.S. One of the kind of final narratives coming into the World Cup was this question about the issue of equal pay. Um, now that the women have won back-to-back World Cups, and I just saw the the overnight TV ratings for the final were um, 20% higher than the men's World Cup last year. Should we not even be talking about equal pay? Should we just pay the women more? Well, one of the more interesting moments last night in the stadium was I heard the whole stadium chanting something in unison and I was trying to figure out what it was. It wasn't USA, USA, which is normally what they're chanting. They were chanting equal pay, equal pay. Um, and just asking the players about that today, uh, before they head back to the U S um, you know, Megan Rapino said that, um, 
it shouldn't even be a discussion anymore. This idea of do the women deserve it or not? She admitted that, you know, winning the World Cup definitely helps, but that's not what it should be about. Um, we should be beyond those discussions that she says. So, um, yeah, I think it's going to be harder more than ever for U.S. soccer to not reach some sort of agreement with the players. I think there's going to be more pressure than ever on FIFA to increase the prize money for the Women's World Cup, especially in light of this tournament breaking TV records in countries around the world, you know, England, Netherlands, Brazil, you know, we've seen it kind of globally, the the stakes and the interests are growing so much that, yeah, I think equal pay is going to continue to be a talking point until it is addressed. It's not going away anytime soon. So we're now in that post-World Cup period familiar where, the question now turns to like, how do we sustain the momentum for women's soccer? I saw that during the tournament, ESPN is picking up the rest of the NWSL games. Budweiser just announced that they're going to be a sponsor of the league, kind of jumping on the bandwagon. Um, do you feel like it's different? Because in the past, it seems like the momentum has kind of uh, died after some time after, you know, the end of the World Cup. Do you feel like it could be different this year? Yeah, that that's a good question. I mean, there's, there's no doubt that there is always a World Cup bump. And I think we've actually already started to see it. The NWSL games have been getting bigger crowds during the World Cup because people are just excited about women's soccer. I do think it comes down to things like the ESPN deal, like the Budweiser sponsorship, because without that investment, doesn't allow the league to uh, have the resources to grow, you know, marketing, expansion, the things that will help uh, the league reach more people. So, um, you know, we've always seen a World Cup bump in attendance. What I think has been missing is a World Cup bump in terms of, you know, sponsorships and resources. So, you know, Budweiser might be trying to ride the coattails of the Women's World Cup, but that's actually a great thing to see because I can tell you in 2015, there was no big name sponsor that joined after the world cup. When the U S won, when they set TV records, you saw the crowds get bigger, but that corporate investment, that sponsorship, the money that didn't get any bigger. So I think this is a positive first step. The league needs to continue to push that and focus on that. And I think that's really the key. Well said on that note. Caitlin Murray, you are a champion. <laughs> I hope you get get to go on a, get to go on vacation soon after it's been a hell of a oh, month. Oh God, for you. no! I I thought about it. I thought about like going to Switzerland or Germany or something on the end of this trip, and now I realize no way. I'm going home as soon as possible. So <laughs> I'll talk to you guys from the U.S. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Caitlin. Once again, her book is "The National Team: The Inside Story of the Women Who Changed Soccer," and you can follow her on Twitter at Caitlin Murr M U R R. Thanks again, Caitlin. Safe travels. Thanks, Caitlin. Get some sleep. I'll try. Thanks. Bye. It was only fitting, I think, that on the day that the USWNT lifted the biggest trophy of their sport, that the U.S. men failed to win a regional trophy at home against Mexico. Maybe I'm being a little harsh. It was 1-0. Mexico scored late in the second half. Hard to call a game at Soldiers Field in Chicago a home match for the USMNT, You know, I was thinking this, Andrew. If the USWNT played the Mexican women at Soldier Field, what do you think the fan ratio would be? That's a fascinating question. I'd, I'd bet it would be totally American. Yeah. Yeah. Seeing the Mexican fans kind of take over the set behind the commentators after the match really showed the numbers that they came with yesterday. I mean, it was like, it, it was basically a home game for, for Mexico yeah. in Chicago. Yeah. And I mean, it's also a sign of like, why wouldn't L Tree get big women's fans in America is because they haven't invested time and resources into their women's program. Right. Of course, Mexico didn't even qualify this year for the World you know, Cup, for the Women's so. World Cup. So for the, the match itself, um, U.S. played really well in the first half. Uh, I think this was Weston McKinney's first captained game, maybe. Maybe. I'm not sure about that. But but Pulisic had a great chance. Altidore, Josie Altidore oh, had a great chance. Yeah. Um, but then in the second half, it just seemed like Mexican. the Mexicans tightened the screw and, and it seemed inevitable that they were going to win. Yeah. You know, in 
it was fun. I texted my friend in the middle of the game. You know, it's fun to watch Christian Pulisic be, you know, in a, in a, in moments the best player on the field for for either team, and it's an exciting sign of like of the potential for this team. Him running at defenders, him take taking on players, creating chances for his teammates. You know the. There was the chance that the U.S. created where they'd created a few goals like this in the tournament where the ball got in wide. It got dropped back to Michael Bradley, who sprayed across to the coming, charging right back, who laid it back across goal. You know, this is this is the kind of soccer that we want the U.S. men's national team to be playing, really proactive, progressive stuff. Um, but you got to finish your chances when you get them. Yep. And I think this this tournament also showed, you know, Pulisic, McKinney. Um, Reggie Cannon at right back is maybe an option going forward. He looked good. Yeah, but at the same time, when Josie put in a good shift at forward, but your bench option is... Zardes. Zardes, right? <laughs> you know, like, the depth on this team is pretty limited. And, and and I think it's a sign of they're moving in the right direction. Yeah. Um, And the player pool's pretty limited. And yeah. so, like, it's time... I'd love to start seeing some of those really exciting U20 players get integrated into the team moving forward. It was a fun experience turning on the game at the end of the day after watching the USWNT. Um, literally, in my mind, it was like, how cute. They're wearing the USWNT jerseys. Right. <laughs> of course, Andrew, you wrote a story for The Ringer about the US MNT's failure to qualify for the 2018 World Cup. So I'm going to ask you a seems couple like more. Seems like forever ago. Seems but yeah. like forever ago, that uh, fateful match against Trinidad. But... A lot of the chatter on Twitter was hashtag Burhalter, Burhalter out. Is that unfair or is that just like the quick snap reaction to America again not winning a trophy? Yeah, it's definitely premature to start saying Burhalter out. Um, one, he got hired, you know, about a year ago this time. It was November 2018, about a year after. So he's had ultimately like a little less than what? six months, eight months in in charge of the team. This was his first kind of major tournament. It was a regional trophy, but ultimately, you know, you win, you lose the Gold Cup. Who cares? Like yeah. The actual thing that we're focusing on is development for the future. Um, no offense to Michael Bradley, but he's probably not the defensive midfielder of the future, but he's a player who's in there now and he's kind of in that that fringe. But Tyler Adams was hurt, you know? Um, there, there's a crop of players that I think are, are coming into this team and then Greg Berhalter has a vision for what, and how this team should be playing, and the players are buying into it. So there are going to be bumps in the road. This isn't going to be overnight. The U.S. isn't going to turn into uh, Man City. You know, no matter no matter who's coaching this team, if you just look at the the players on on deck, that's the reality. And so it's a tough position. There's not a lot of goodwill in the tank right now yeah. from a fan perspective. Yeah, and and rightfully so. You know, I think as the story we we reported last year in the Ringer, this. The organization inside U.S. soccer knew there were deep structural problems inside the men's team, and they didn't address them, and they let them fester, and they got worse, and the U.S. missed the World Cup, right? Which was which was a very preventable thing. And now what this team needs, the challenge for this team is not only do you have to win, but you have to win back the loyalty and of fans who, you know, maybe don't feel like supporting it, especially when U.S. soccer is doubling down on not paying the women equally and just you know there there seems like there are all these unforced errors that are that are turning people away from this organization. You mentioned them already, but I'm going to ask again because it was a question posed by one Bill Simmons in our Ringer Slack channel which is how much longer do we have to watch Michael Bradley play soccer for the US the MNT? Um I mean I think he's he, there's a there's a high chance he's on the roster for the what it would be 2022 yeah. World Cup. In, you know, in, he's in Qatar. He's 31 years old. Um, I understand the Michael Bradley frustration, but it's almost like he's. I think Kevin Clark, another one of my colleagues, said something to the effect of like, no team with him seems like they're going to contend, but then the team is worse without him. So it's yes. kind of like you need him still. Name a better defensive midfielder in the U.S. pool other than Tyler Adams, who's hurt. Than Michael Bradley. Yeah. It's you really can't do it. And you watch some of those, you know, I mentioned that one diagonal ball. A lot of the best US kind of chances from the run of play get created because Michael Bradley hits passes that very few other players in the pool can hit. I think it's just unfair unfairly just that bald bearded head in the middle of the pitch is just a symbol of failure. Or people yeah. just see it yeah. and, and associate it with failure. Yeah. Yeah. And and 
you know, his 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 liabilities were on on display in the second half when he was basically slow, slow and asked to cover a lot of ground and got and, you know, both he and Weston McKinney got beat on on Mexico's goal, which partially is a result of communication, but is also Michael Bradley isn't the spry young young chicken that he once was, you know, so we should mention that if VAR were in play at Soldier Field Mm -hmm. for the Gold Cup. Guadardo would definitely have been sent off, right? I For mean, the chokehold? Yeah. yeah. I mean, that was pretty vicious. <laughs> it was. And how did the referee not see? He was literally standing right next I to know, him. I know. Yeah. Maybe he was scared of the fans. I um, know. All right. So USMNT loses to Mexico Gold Cup. Did you watch any of the Copa America final? To be honest, no. I, I watched. Like, I made, I made a choice. I was like, I can only <laughs> do two, and I'm not, I was going to do both US games. Did, you know, speaking of, did you? was there anything to you to Rapino's comments that it was— unfair of FIFA to schedule two men's finals on the same day as the women's World Cup final? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Grant Wall interviewed the head of CONCACAF and was like, why did you schedule the Gold Cup final? And the head of CONCACAF, you know, said, it wasn't anything malicious. We just didn't realize it. And I think that's the fundamental problem, right? That they're on the radar of men's soccer. They weren't even thinking about the women's tournament. Thank God it was different time zones. Right, but like, that that is the problem, you know? There's not... It's it's kind of worse that it that it wasn't even malicious, you yeah. know, that they weren't even trying to upstage it, but in the process of doing it, they did. You know, the, the the women the women's game, you know, we're guilty of this too. You know, we're gonna folk we focus a way more on the Premier League on the men's game during the calendar year than the women's game. You know, like this is the one chance we have to shine a light and a spotlight and focus all of the soccer community's attention on it. And you know, in the middle of the Pre-game, the halftime show for the Women's World Cup, they were previewing the Gold Cup game, you know? Uh, and Mulan. Yeah, and, <laughs> and Mulan. Uh, I did watch just about bits and pieces of the Brazil match. Um, it's kind of funny and weird that the, you know, upstart player for Brazil is named Everton because all the headlines say, like, <laughs> Everton on the rise. Uh, he scored, and G- Gabriel Jesus got sent off. And it was a 2-1 victory. Brazil were the hosts. I think this is their first Copa in 12 years to win. So congrats to them. But let's get back to the real stuff. Women's World Cup. I'm going to bring in Julie Kliegman, and we're going to talk our exit surveys. Okay, we're back and joined by my ringer colleague, Julie Kliegman. What's up, Julie? Hey, Donnie. How's it going? Doing well. Uh, Julie's USWNT equal pay story was retweeted. By none other than Hillary Clinton last week. That's true. That's amazing. How did that feel? Got the Hill co-sign. Uh, very surreal, actually. Um, I, I didn't quite believe it until I saw it a few times. <laughs> That's awesome. I should note that uh, on the ringer.com, great website, we have Shakra Saman's recap of the final, uh, Brian Phillips writing about the USWNT dominance, uh, Roger Sherman writing about Megan Rapino, our great American hero. And we also have a Women's World Cup exit survey I'm going to ask the same questions to Andrew and Julie that I asked uh, my colleagues in that survey. Check it out. So I'll start with you, Andrew. Who is your tournament MVP? Pride of Cincinnati, Skyline Chili expert, Rose Lavelle. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I just thought of all the young American players, I kind of had had thought Lindsey Horan would be the breakout player. And for a lot of reasons, I don't think she really got the chance to be the breakout player. but, But Rose consistently was the one American player with the ability to get between the lines, to be creating chances uh, from the run of play and set up her teammates. And so I think her performance was, was the, was the standout one. You know, we all kind of expected fireworks from Pino and, and Alex Morgan, but I think it was Rose Lavelle's play that, that definitely stood out the most and fitting that she got the the goal that sealed the deal uh, yesterday. Julie? Yeah, well, so I was going to take Lavelle, and I see you're taking Pino. So um, I'll just kind of go with a little bit of a wild card. I'm going to say Alyssa Nair, which mm. is a weird one. but You um, went 180 on her because you were kind of— Exactly. That's exactly it. So I was I was really nervous about her at the start of the tournament. She scared the crap out of me a little <laughs> bit. I feel like she was falling on the ball a lot. Like which every game time did she, she just look save. super scared? I think it Sweden? was— Sweden? It was either Chile or Sweden. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know what? She did all right. She saved a PK. Um, it's not easy living up to like the play of Hope Solo and Brianna Scurry. And you know what? She, she did well. Yeah. I mean, it's like in, in hockey, 
uh, it's sometimes harder to be the keeper that gets very few shots because the ones that you do, you really, you know, you have to stop them. And to be the GOAT for a team that's that dominant, the GOAT meaning the actual GOAT, not the greatest of all time, <laughs> the GOAT GOAT would really suck. I mean, it's like you have to kind of be alert, hyper alert, because you might only get a couple shots a game and you have to stop them. Yeah. So, yeah, props to her. I'm going with Pino, Megan Rapino, our great American hero. Just for the way that she takes penalties, it's like, uh, you know, as a supporter of the team, you want the person taking the penalties to exude a calm, cool. I saw a lot of PKs this tournament. Nobody had the confidence mm. that Rapino had. She just knew that she was going to convert, and she always did. So props to her. All right, Took move- on Trump in the middle of the tournament and won, you know? <laughs> yeah. uh, what was your favorite moment of the tournament? I'll start with you, Julie. Um, so I really liked the U.S.-Chile match, which wasn't that interesting of a match itself, but it was really pretty pretty fucking fun to see our scrubs like take on another team starting 11. Scrubs, I'll use that in air quotes, yeah. because they're still some of the greatest players in the world. But um, I thought that was really cool. We got a game of Jessica McDonald, which was great. Yeah. Um, so I'd say that game. And plus Endler, uh, the Chile, Chilean keeper. Was oh, just, she was incredible. She, um, that one had been the goalkeeping. I know that the Netherlands keeper won the, the glove, golden gloves, but I mean, Endler was amazing that game. Yeah. Um, my favorite moment was actually after the tournament. Hmm. Uh, after the U.S. won, I don't know if anyone has, has not seen this yet, but Ashlyn Harris, one of the backup goalkeepers, just put on the most blissful Instagram story of the locker room celebrations. And... You know, uh, Caitlin touched on this earlier. It it was just so cool to see this group of women who all seem to so genuinely like each other and care Mm. about each other Mm. and love each other just get the chance to celebrate, you know, after (laughs) be drunk and have a good time. Like like they've I feel like they've been carrying the burdens of the equal pay fight, you know, Uh, Trump coming after them on Twitter, the you know. Yeah, the the criticisms I think which you're going to talk about later about the celebrations you know they've just taken shot after shot taken all this undeserved shit and just to have them have a moment to just have a great ass time in the locker room and pour champagne down each other's throats and watch Alex Morgan twerk in the locker room after winning a World Cup it's like <laughs> more air quotes this is, for that, this but... is great you <laughs> plus know? you got Pino on the bar oh my god yeah on the bar video, right? I want to know. The, I need the oral history of who organized the like <laughs> the bar celebration they went to. <laughs> I mean, coming to the ringer.com celebration so well deserved. Uh, my favorite moment, I have a couple favorite moments beyond the or outside of the USWNT. Uh, anyone who knows me knows I like controversy. So uh, there were a couple controversial moments that I remember, will always remember vividly. One was the Scotland Argentina group stage match that ended 3 3. Scotland went up 3 0. Argentina clawed their way back. And that final goal was a penalty retake, which was very dramatic. And created a lot of talking points after. And then I really, really liked the Cameroon-England round of 16 shit show. Um, the bad tackles, the VAR reversals, the recriminations, Phil Neville ranting after the match, the English media clutching their pearls. I kind of like those kinds of football matches. It reminded me actually a little bit of the, the men's tournament, the Columbia-England match, where there was all kinds of shithousery. So uh, those two games I really, really enjoyed watching and also what happened after the match of the discussions all right least favorite moment of the tournament andrew it was definitely the the narrative about the thailand game and where the where the women did they score too many goals should they have gone on easier should they have celebrated differently just that went on for like 72 hours so yeah. it was <laughs> it was this ridiculous media cycle you know Pier, cowards chiming in here's morgan's you know <laughs> leaning in it's like you know who cares? They're in a World Cup. They scored a bunch of goals, you know, and and I think they were kind of vindicated when after the game, the the a lot of the Thai players said, you know, we were glad you 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 kept playing hard. It would have been way more demeaning if you just kept the ball away from us for sixty minutes. Yeah, you know? actually, actually, I should quickly away. interject that uh, on the favorite moment tip. I thought Thailand scoring against oh Sweden yeah, was an, it was an awesome moment, um, and the, the tears on the sideline. Julie, least favorite moment? Uh, I've got to agree with Andrew. That discourse was just completely, completely exhausting. And you know, if the U.S. had kind of stopped scoring or stopped pushing, you know, there would have been just as annoying of a media cycle around that. And, you know, that that kind of attitude toward the U.S., which I get in general, it's it's fine to have an attitude toward the U.S., but do it for a better reason. I mean, uh, just 
calling us arrogant throughout the tournament. Maybe we are a little arrogant, but come on, like they're world class athletes, right? Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Kiss and the rings. It got to the point where there was even a controversy over the U.S. scouting the hotel they would stay in. Yeah. If um, I think that was a Phil Neville controversy, final. but yeah, I felt like that was Phil Neville trying to do a Mourinho poorly. Yeah. <laughs> it was really like, like Mourinho trying to start, you know, like Arsene Wenger, the voyeur, or try to get psychologically into the U.S.'s head. And then it just failed. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So my least favorite moment of the tournament this might sound weird to you guys, but I thought that Ellen White's potential equalizer in the semifinal that would have tied the match to two, uh, I think in the 60 something minute. I was really, really disappointed that a marginal offsides. That was VAR, that right? That was VAR. Yeah. yeah. And she was, you know, by the you know letter of the law, maybe a half a foot, like a human foot, not a foot offside. Um, so it was disappointing because I felt like had the match been drawn at that point, we would be in for probably the most exciting 30 minutes of the footballing year. Yeah. Of course, more drama followed. There was the penalty, the missed penalty, et cetera. But... Uh, I really wanted England to tie there because I just wanted to see what would happen. Um, but that leads us into VAR. Julie, VAR, in or out? Uh, kind of surprising myself a little bit, but I'm in on VAR. I mean, uh, it has its drawbacks. Uh, as you mentioned, that was, you know, it could have made the game way more exciting had had that goal stood, and it probably should have stood. And you also have all the bullshit around um, the keepers stepping off the line. Those kind of are very ticky-tacky, in my opinion. But also, I mean, look at look at what it does when it does its job. Right. Right. I mean, in the final alone, you had that moment. That was definitely, definitely a penalty yeah. on it. Alex Morgan, I believe, was the really high kick. Um, Apparently, she had marks on her arm after the match. Jeez. Yeah. I mean, it looks pretty brutal. Um, but, but... It was brutal. I'm not going to deny that. But it was there was another defender covering her. Alex Morgan was going away from goal. You know, it's like one of those, it, the extent to which was that a clear goal scoring opportunity? It was definitely a foul. And by the letter of the law, they called it correctly. But like. Yeah. So your it, problem is with the laws, not the VAR. The law, yeah. But then, but I feel like VAR. Exacerbates. Exacerbates the yeah. like stickiness of the law. Right. Whereas like, obviously it was. She had a high boot. It was a foul. It was in the box. Obviously, clear penalty. But in the in the moment, as you were watching it, as the ref watched it, it was like this did not deny a clear goal scoring opportunity. I'm gonna let it let it ride, right? Yeah. And what happens if the U.S. doesn't get that penalty? You know, like the the game really only opened up then. It's funny because while I was watching it and before that penalty, in my mind, I was thinking this is all set up for like a late Dutch corner, yeah, set piece, uh-huh. and then them winning one nil and stunning the world. So. Uh, and, you know, it wasn't for the first time that the U.S. kind of got bailed out because in, against Spain, uh, that was kind of a ticky-tack penalty as well, the Rose Lavelle play. Yeah. So you're out on VAR. Yeah, and I think I think I brought this up last time, but it's it feels like, obviously, I think our larger problem is with these this ambiguity around the laws of the game, and VAR is just bringing that out. Mm-hmm. Um, when you slow zero in on, you know, a high boot in the penalty area, it's obviously going to be called a foul. Um, but... You know, so much of the game, the Netherlands game plan was coming in, you know, we're going to be defensive, we're going to bunker and we're going to try and break out. And they'd done it to great effect. They were the only team that prevented the U.S. WMNT from scoring for 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 a half, right? The U.S. didn't break the deadlock until like the 60th minute, right? Yeah. And so, yeah, I don't know. I guess I guess my point is just VAR, by being so nitpicky around the rules, are we losing some of the like chance and randomness and yeah. and craziness that we make that makes soccer fun you yeah, know? i'm kind of in between you both of you guys i'm kind of on the fence still i mean julie to your point var isn't there to make the game more exciting it's to make it more just right but then to your point andrew sometimes it doesn't seem like it's making it more just and often i when i'm watching the match i'm thinking if var wasn't implemented here or if var didn't exist you know would the outcome be less just or less fair mm-hmm. so it's tricky i mean i think like if the thought or the idea was that implementing or using VAR would lessen the number of controversies or hotly, <laughs> right. you know, hotly debated calls, I mean, it's not doing that. So, but so I'm on the fence. <laughs> I can't decide. It's funny why we why we consider a call made in the run of play versus a, a VAR call. Like the VAR call is somehow less just, right? Even though ultimately it has the same 
real it, world impact. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we're still, uh, Julie wrote today, I think in your survey, that we're ironing out the kinks still, and I yeah. think that's accurate. And you could see that even during this one tournament, the goalkeeper on the line during PK rule, it seemed weird when it was in, when they all of a sudden started calling it, but the keepers adjusted over time, and you didn't you saw very few. I don't think you saw any retakes actually in the knockout rounds. So, well, they also scrapped that rule for the knockout rounds, the keeper rule. Well, I think they didn't scrap the rule; they scrapped the card that they gave the, that the the card that the keeper got for breaking the rule. But I think they still kept the rule, if I'm not mistaken. I'm not anyway, sure. Somebody, somebody fact check that. All right, let's move on. We asked this of Caitlin Murray when she was on earlier, and Julie, I'm going to ask you: Were we all media fans, pundits, whatever, wrong for criticizing USWNT manager Jill Ellis throughout this tournament? Um, I don't think so. I, I really don't. I mean, I I'm not going to say she was a terrible coach. She obviously led the team to victory twice in a row now. Um, but I did find some of her calls baffling, and I think we all did. I mean. Andrew's guy, Andrew's guy, Lindsay on the bench, uh, most of the tournament. Uh, <laughs> Linda's upset. <laughs> um, and, you know, also, uh, she seems to have a weird um, obsession with the veterans that goes beyond, like, logic of how much they should be played. Carly Lloyd is in there all the time. Uh, I don't know why, really. She's just always, like, very clearly thirsty for another goal every time she's in at the expense of, like, I don't know. We could have someone in there who's younger, get them more experience on the world stage. Um, Did Pew even play in the knockouts? I don't she, think so. Not at all, huh? Yeah. I don't think she played past Chile, maybe, yeah. or Sweden. That's what I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I, I mean, it, we also have pointed out on this podcast before that when you sub people in, they have fresh legs. And the, it's, you know, been proven that fresh legs actually do matter in terms of scoring goals. And yet we still keep all of our subs unless someone gets injured until the last few minutes. I think, um, you know, should we criticize her? Yeah, no. I mean, obviously she won. So she's got that to hang over us. Um, her, her lineups were definitely tactically flawed at times. I think, and this is, I've not no, I've done no reporting on this, but, you know, having followed this team for a while and listening to what Caitlin Murray was telling us earlier about the problems within the team, the fact that there were all these factions that were trying to get Jill Ellis fired in 2017. I do wonder to what extent was some of her decision-making motivated by a desire to keep the locker room tight and congealed an over interesting... over what she knew was going to maybe be the best tactical setup for that moment. But, you know, it's part of coaching, too. Exactly. Yeah, right. I'm not, and not to criticize her, but I, I think there were a lot of games, you know, I, I don't want to go after uh, our new president, Megan Rapinoe. <laughs> there were a lot of games where Megan Rapinoe was not great in yeah. this World Cup. Yeah. And she, she admitted as such, especially, I want to say, after the France game, you know, every time she tried to turn the French right back, she got dispossessed. You know, was that a game where where Kristen Press could have could have had a much larger impact earlier? Um, but is there is there a reason to keep Megan Rapinoe in because she's a leader? She's you know, yeah. yeah, you can make that argument. But I do I do wonder in the back of her head, what was the decision making and how much managing the egos of a team that has justifiably a lot of egos on it? How much that that figured into her decision-making. It's an interesting point, and, it, and it's really the tightrope that any coach or manager of an extremely talented team has to walk. I mean, people always say, like, for Pep Guardiola or, you know, Bill Belichick, you know, Phil Jackson or whomever, it's like you got the best players. Of course, yeah. you're going to win, but it's not that easy. you got to manage the egos. you got to manage the dressing room, et cetera. For me, Joe Ellis, I think any coach's game plan can be criticized, tactics, lineup, and I think, you know, it's fair game. But I do think that, it was a little overboard because we didn't really have much else to criticize. Right. And I think her game management, I mean, the fact of the matter is every match, the lineup that she put out there scored in the first 12 minutes. And then the way that she, uh, you know, strategized was based on early leads. So, you know, because the U.S. never got in a hole or ever trailed at, at all during this entire tournament, we didn't really get to see how she would have to sure. change things up because sure. she was always playing from ahead. Okay. Last few here. Your favorite non-USWNT player or team, uh, Julie? Um, I've really, like you did, I really enjoyed the Scotland-Argentina match. Yeah. Um, and I really liked Erin Cuthbert. She scored that third goal to put um, Scotland up 
by three, which would be a very short-lived lead. But <laughs> that was just such a fun game. Uh, after she scored, she pulled the picture of herself. In the moment, it was a little unclear who the picture was of. And yeah, it was then, like a tiny. She should have put out like an eight by eleven, but it was like a little like wallet <laughs> a photo poster. Of, <laughs> but yeah, so it was a picture of herself, and she kissed it. And I just thought that was the coolest flex in the world. That was a dope flex, uh, Andrew. Favorite non-American player? Yeah, I mean, I think I think the Dutch team were great this tournament, and really like Danielle van de Donk. Yeah. I thought she, you know, I was looking at the stats. She didn't actually score a goal or an assist, but just every time I watched the Dutch team play, she was all over the field in mid- midfield and covering a ton of ground and and cr- making that team making that team's engine engine run. So we should all support her this coming season with uh, Arsenal at the in the FAWSL. Come on, you Gunners. Okay, so I I have a few. I liked Ingrid Engen of Norway. I liked Valerie Govan of France, uh, Sophia Jakobsen, the forward for Sweden. She scored uh, that goal against Germany. Also, I found out played while her little brother was recovering from a coma. So she had dedicated that goal to him, and that was a nice story. Um, and then I have to mention Marta, the legendary Brazilian player who, after her team was ousted by the host France, gave an interview, a TV interview on the pitch, which was, you just have to watch it. Uh, because it was literally goosebumps watching that. All right. If you guys had a message for the U.S. Soccer Federation as this pay equity issue goes into mediation, what would it be, Julie? Obviously, pay the team. Um, You know, I think it's important to remember in light of the World Cup win that they should be getting paid whether or not they won the World Cup. It's really not about performance or resume, even though they have both of those things on lock. It's about... uh, doing the same job as the men and getting paid less, which is morally wrong, legally wrong. Um, so pay the team. Andrew. Pay them. I mean, I, I was I tweeted about this earlier. I think the thing I don't understand from U.S. soccer, I was doing a little back envelope math. So basically, one of the main issues with equal pay is the appearance and bonus fees are not equal for the men's and women's teams. And to basically give the women the appearance and bonus fees the men get, it would cost something like three or $4 million a year. How is that money? Like, how is that less expensive than being publicly at war with your team throughout the World Cup and having to go into an expensive mediation process with high-priced lawyers? Like, how is that? And potentially going through the court system after that. Yeah, it's just a terrible look. Like, (laughs) terrible look. How, like, even if the issues, I get, I get everyone at U.S. soccer is really, they feel very personally hurt because they're like, they feel basically, and I've talked to some people at U.S. soccer, they feel like we entered into a collective bargaining agreement with the women in 2017. They agreed to this. Right. And now they're suing us. And it's like, so what? Name another. Plenty of athletes have tried to like effectively, which is what they're doing, renegotiate their contracts right. after signing them because conditions have changed. Exactly. That's what this is. And like, get over being hurt. Right. Pay them because you're just making your organization look small. Mm-hmm. And and that's the thing. On the and, flip side, if you know they do uh, equalize the pay, it's like they're you know you're seeing like ESPN we were mentioning Budweiser like yeah. jumping on this bandwagon it's such a great PR move right. outside of anything else also i would add to this pay Jill Ellis um i believe yeah. she gets paid worse than the male U20 coach oh, for so sure. just pay Jill Ellis too i mean regardless of what you think of her she's won back to back titles they paid Jurgen Klinsmann more to not even coach the 2018 World Cup than they <laughs> paid Jill Ellis to win it yeah. and they probably paid him more to not to win her i bet she's made less over the her entire life as coach, I'd have to do the math, than Klinsman made for not even coaching the 2018 tournament. For the final word on this, I put this in the exit survey on ringer.com, but you should just check Snoop Dogg's Instagram. He has a little video message, and that sums it up nicely. Okay, finally, there was so much talk about celebrations in this World Cup. We had the Thailand stuff. We had Megan Rapino against France. We had the sipping tea, Alex Morgan. If you guys scored a goal in a World Cup, how would you celebrate, Andrew? Oh man, um, <laughs> I would just—I think I would—I would be. Uh, did you guys see there was like the image of Rose Lavelle yesterday when she won the the golden ball and they handed it to her and she was on the podium and she didn't quite know what to do and then they they told her like oh turn your head and smile and she did that. I think I would be kind of more the bewildered Roosevelt, <laughs> not like like literally not sure how this had happened, what is my body doing and just would be kind of in a state of such such utter shock and disbelief. I might just like 
John Brooks did this in the 2014 World Cup for the men. After he scored, he just kind of put his hands over his head and was like, I don't know what just happened to me. <laughs> he just laid down and just gave up, like, enter the fetal I like position. I like how Andrew was doing this as, like, a literal, yeah. like, if I, yeah. myself, yeah, yeah, critical. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I wish you guys could see the gesturing here. <laughs> I, would, I would just lay down because I would be so shocked. I would, I would, I would know where to go. <laughs> Julie. Um, so I, I like the idea, sort of in the vein of Andrew's almost, is uh, I think everyone has all these really cool celebrations, and I'm a Seinfeld fan, and I think it would just be fun to have like a dorky celebration. So I'm all about the Elaine Bennis dance from Seinfeld. <laughs> I love it. What would you do, Donnie? I'm going to do the thing. I mean, it's not original, but it's like you score the goal, you peel off, you're running, all your teammates are trying to like grab you and like celebrate with you. You're kind of like shucking them off, like get off me, get off me, but smiling the whole time. And you make a beeline toward the manager and you just give him or her this long emotional hug for like three or four beats. And everyone's like, oh, it must really mean a lot to both of them. And then as after that hug. Is the manager Jurgen Klopp in this scenario? (laughs) (laughs) It's it's definitely not Jurgen Klopp. It's Unai Emery actually. (laughs) Okay. And then after that, I look at wherever the opposing fans are sitting and I do the shush. I love the shush. The shush shush. is like so perfect um, as sort of a taunt, post-goal taunt. I'd do the knee slide, but I'd be afraid I'd like skin my knees and fall over. Yeah, that's a bad idea. The knee slide can go very, very wrong. And it has gone very wrong actually before. All right, Andrew and Julie, thank you so much for joining me on this World Cup recap episode. Thank you. Hey, thank you. And for Ringer FC fans, our next episode will probably be sometime in August. We're going to, I mean, can you believe it? Premier League season is back. We're going to do a Premier League preview uh, roster TBD. Until then, go watch the NWSL. Until then, go watch the NWSL, now sponsored by Budweiser. Yeah. And on ESPN, so you have no excuse. Hell yeah. Peace. 